But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the nerve... Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? And you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response when a pigeon pecking it. You know there was a recent comparative cognition study that showed that dogs hold hostilities toward people that harm their masters? Well, I guess maybe I miss having a dog to love. Tell me that's not something. Uh, that was from the most recent episode of The X-Files. And uh, apparently Scully is up on comparative cognition research. So uh, the podcast is clearly having an effect. You know, we're, we're, we're enhancing our engagement with regular people. Uh, to check out your engagement, go to clerk.me. Anyway, uh, today, uh, well, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Spit and Twitch, the Animal Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Broadbeck. Uh, today on the podcast, uh, we've got Eric Legg. Eric is an instructor in the Department of Psychology at University of Alberta. Uh, Eric uh, started out, I mean, I, I've known Eric since he was an undergraduate. I actually taught Eric intro psych, and I taught him animal behavior and a bunch of other stuff uh, and learning, I think. It's kind of funny in learning one day. Um, he and I just started talking. He asked a question, and we ended up designing like three experiments, and the rest of the class well, they didn't really get most of it, so we stopped talking. But I always remembered that Eric always carried around this little uh, notebook that, that said research ideas, which was kind of great. Uh, Eric then went on. Uh, I think he did his undergrad. I'd left Memorial University of Newfoundland by then, but he finished his undergrad. I think he did it with Sandra Wright. And then later on went on to uh, do a master's and a PhD in Marcy Spetch's lab at the University of Alberta. Uh, Eric's work, uh, he's done a lot of stuff on spatial stuff, uh, both in pigeons and uh, in ants. And the ant stuff, of course, he did, uh, you probably know this, uh, along with, of course, Marsha Spetch and Ken Ching. So that's kind of cool. So we might have some Ken Ching stories to, ch to share as well. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eric Legg. So, Eric, how's it going? Hey, not too bad. So uh, my my tradition has become as you maybe maybe you've listened to some of these. I ask everyone about the weather. Um, <laughs> I'm going to change that as a Montreal Canadiens fan, and you live in Edmonton. Uh, what's it like having a shitty hockey team? Because we got one. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, you know, there's more hockey people out there than than me. I mean, than there. I don't know. And they can't so, figure it out either, right? Eh? No, they can't figure it yeah, out. Yeah, you guys got Nobody like, knows what's going on. There's like 38 first-round draft picks, I think, to play for Edmonton. And I think Montreal might get one this year. So, <laughs> well, yeah. we'll see how that goes. I mean, it hasn't worked out too well for us. No, that's right. Yeah. Well, my, 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 my thought now is just tank for that Austin Matthews kid. Screw it. Just start losing games on purpose. Uh, though that, again, hasn't worked out that well for Edmonton. Um so you've been out there for geez, when did you get when did you go out there? Uh two thousand and five. Okay, wow, that was a while ago. And before that, of course, we met each other. Uh I think I taught you your first class in university. You absolutely did. You were my uh psych one oh four professor. Yeah. Intro psych, baby. Or as they called it that it was psych psych a thousand and a thousand and one, of course, at uh, Grenfell. Um <laughs> uh, yeah, because I remember you asked me a question about how much caffeine was in a chocolate bar. I'll never forget that moment. Um 
I don't know why. You know, I know why. Because you had much more of a Newfoundland accent then than you do now, and uh, I didn't understand what you said. <laughs> I went, what? It sounds about right. I'm coming right <laughs> off the coast. and Yeah. That's right, because you grew up in – you're from Port of Basque, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's the south – for those of you scoring at home, the southwest tip, basically, of the island of Newfoundland. Um, and you decided to be a psych major pretty quickly or – yeah, it's kind of a, a weird story. I mean, I uh, graduated high school. I was only 17. Okay. I had this grand plan. I was going to become a police officer, for an RCMP officer. And, cool. Uh, they said, no, you're too young. You can't even apply until you're 18. So okay. go do psychology and sociology. Oh. Uh, and that'll help you get into the forces when you're, when you're ready. Okay. I said, okay, I'll go do that. And then I took one semester uh, with Psych 104, 1000, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was pretty hooked. And then I was like, okay, well, no, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> and, like, what what was it about psychology right away that you found interesting? I don't know. Um, I mean, it just just talking about studying these kind of sort of unobservable mental processes yeah. in kind of an objective fashion was, right. was kind of fascinating to me. I was like, totally. wow. You can really do this. My my idea of psychology before that was, oh, people lie on a couch yes. and <laughs> explain their feelings. Well, so, I mean, I think we all had that. Uh, I know I went into psychology to to, to to cure the to cure the insane, basically, and uh, I found that I had enough personal problems of my own. Um, <laughs> when when did you decide? Because I remember you, eventually you worked in in my lab. But when did you decide that you wanted to get involved in that kind of stuff in in, in animal stuff? Uh, when I took. Uh, well, intro psych, we, we did a little chapter on learning yep. and behavior and yep. that was, that pretty much caught my attention right away. And I was like, okay, this, this seems really awesome. I was like, you can study animals you can study these kind of behavioral processes right. in this kind of objective way. And I was right. like, holy crap. So then I took your intro to learning class yep. and that that's history. I mean, that that's the end of the story. Basically, as soon as I took that course, I was okay. like, okay. I know what I like. Okay, so that's interesting because I know when I took learning, um, I looked at a friend of mine and said, if I ever end up doing this for a living, find me and shoot me. Um, <laughs> because it just seems so – it's funny. At the time, it seemed so boring. And I mean now, I, I teach it and I love it. I love – especially I love talking about the classical stuff, but the Riscola the Wagner model, all that stuff. But at the time, I – Hell, in graduate school, I, I answered a Rascola Wagner question once, and Sarah gave me two out of twenty, and I think she was just being nice. <laughs> it's amazing now that I somehow put it together. So you, and then you did. I guess that was just after I left that you did your honors thesis there, yeah? Yeah. So you, you left in my third year, okay. uh, and then uh, in my fourth year, yeah, I started up my uh, honors thesis with uh, Dr. Sandra Wright, nice. uh, and we got some rats in. Uh, and we, we were working with rats looking at episodic like memory. Nice. That's a, that's a big, big question for a kid. Yeah. It was a little bit intimidating to kind of start off and dive right off the deep end. Yeah. And this was back in, I guess like 2004, right. something like that. And it was, you know, things have come a long way since then. It was a yeah. pretty hot new topic at that time. Yeah. I mean, this, this was just as, as people like, <clears throat> excuse me, as people like say John Crystal, um, we're just starting to think about this sort of episodic like memory stuff or, or, you know, Ken and, and Nikki Clayton, uh, and Al Camel with the, uh, that's before that, obviously. So, well, that's, that's pretty ambitious for somebody. Uh, you know, uh, again, I, I, it reminds me, uh, I was, I stupidly in my honors thesis, uh, six experiments. <laughs> yeah. I'm an idiot. I've reread it by the way. I, I, I'd give it about a 72. Oh. Just, isn't that good? 
I've looked at my honors thesis and I was like, what was I thinking? Yeah. I was like, I'm not sure where this is going. <laughs> I know. And I look at the stats in it and I mean, I'm a stats guy and I look at it and go, oh, I just don't ever, don't ever let anybody see this. <laughs> I, I show my honor students usually and say, this is how not to do an honors thesis. See this? Don't do it like this. I just chalk that up to growing pains. Yeah, that's exactly right, right? And I mean, it's, I guess it's good in early stages to be really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ambitious like that. When you went off to grad school, because you went off and you worked with Marcia, Marcia Spetch, right? Yes, yeah. So when you got to University of Alberta and started working on stuff for your uh, master's, were you like that again? Like, I want to I get to the really big problems, or did you get to something smaller? Oh, no, it was basically, okay, let's let's do this. I think for my first year project, I proposed this kind of multi-pronged experiment that I was going to, I don't know, run 30 birds in a year or something <laughs> like that. It was, the, And I remember Chris Sturdy and, and Marcia were, Chris was on my committee and right. Marcia is obviously my supervisor. Sure. And they both kind of looked at each other and then looked at me and they were like, no, unless you want to live in the lab and not have an apartment, you, you can't do this. Right. So I've always had this kind of gung-ho attitude. Right. Yeah, again, uh, when I, I remember when I got to, uh, to grad school and I, I, Sarah said to me, what do you want to work on? And I said, I want to know how they represent things in their memory. And she said, that's kind of a big question for a master's, don't you think? <laughs> so she said, save that for your PhD. Save that for your PhD. Um, so the, eventually you go uh, and you, you're doing your, your, your PhD work. Um, the, the first thing, I mean, I... I always knew that you were doing stuff. I mean, I wrote you a lot of recommendation, frankly, uh, which I looked up. Um, uh, and anyway, because uh, I keep all those things because I'm a pack rat. Um, but uh, one of the things that the first that I ran into you at CO3 and you were talking about, I think, one of the papers that you sent me, the, the one about the sort of hierarchical representation in pigeons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what what paper specifically are you talking uh, it's about? It's the one. Oh, it's got the. Uh, I don't know who did. I think it's Leg and somebody. Uh, oh, <laughs> but it's it's it was about the uh, the representational uh, sort of hierarchical representation that pigeons have in memory, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I know exactly what you're talking about now. That's the one with the, uh, the kind of the local global queue. Yeah, kind yeah. Of that's right. Situation. Yep. So what what led you to do that kind of stuff? Uh, I don't know. I, I just started to kind of, you know, once I got established in, in Marcia's lab, I started to read a lot of old papers. And she had this, this old paper in 1992 mm-hmm. where she did this work with pigeons and they were going into these kind of little chambers looking at kind of compare and contrast this local queue versus this kind of global queue within right. the room. And the, the local queue was kind of a configural queue between a, a, a bunch of different items within an array right and i thought that was that was kind of a fascinating idea and i was like okay well you know there's got to be more to it than than this so what i think we should do is is you know we should evaluate this kind of more critically look at this in a in a kind of an operant type task where we could kind of manipulate many different facets Mm -hmm. of 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 this and i mean this is actually kind of following up on some of the work that you did too because you did a lot right. of this with uh dark-eyed juncos and i think uh chickadees right? that's right yep and i mean that kind of <clears throat> those kind of questions i mean uh the idea that things are i guess multimodal isn't quite the right word but the representations are sort of uh redundant uh, and that the only way you can find out what's going on is by sort of putting the cues in competition i, I I, uh, I've always, I've always liked that approach, uh, as you can probably tell, but yeah. uh, sort of what I've 
built my career on. But um, I think that sort of trying to get at the, you know, what they're remembering without being able to ask them directly, what are you remembering? Is something that, I mean, that's, that's to me always been quite a bit of fun. Um, so you make a transition from that, which is, you know, pretty basic, uh, hardcore animal cognition stuff, uh, as I like to call that. Uh, and then you go off and you decide you want to do some stuff with ants. <laughs> that's what? a fun story. Yeah. And I want to, cause you're working with, I mean, two, two people I know pretty well. Marcy, I know pretty well. And Ken, Ken's an old friend. I know Ken Cheng. I knew Ken Cheng when he was a postdoc in Bill Roberts lab. Um, I mean, I, I've told the story before. The day he came up with the geometric, uh, uh, sorry, the, uh, uh, what's his name, the, the vector sum model, I was in the lab that day. I heard him yell from his office, Eureka! <laughs> Which is a, that's so Ken Cheng. It's, the, it's a, such a great Ken Cheng story. Um, so, yeah, what's the story behind you, you guys working together with ants? Well, uh, you know, Ken's been into this for quite some time, and uh, yeah. and Marcia's always collaborated pretty closely with mm-hmm. Ken on a on a number of projects. And Marcia was uh, going on sabbatical, and she had these plans to kind of go down to Australia and kind of work with Ken on some of his new stuff, which sure. was at that time kind of doing the desert and stuff. And she was like, you know, you should read these papers. We were discussing them in lab meetings and those sorts of things. And it's like I really got hooked on this. So then I, I had a couple of ideas, and Marcia basically said, you know, well, do you want to go? And I was like, go to Australia? Well, yeah, <laughs> yes, please. Uh, <laughs> so the next thing you know, I mean, I'm in the middle of the outback, in the middle of the desert, and uh, I'm looking at these little creatures, which are great, because, I mean, they're, they're a nice model species. I mean, they, they have a lot of different physiological mechanisms sure. compared to say, uh, a, a bird like a pigeon, uh, yeah. and definitely a lot different than uh, humans. Sure. And, and Ken's doing all of this work kind of uh, comparatively, looking at the kind of navigational toolkits of these Australian desert ants that live in this semi-arid kind of habitat, so they have a bunch of landmark information and stuff to use, yes. uh, and comparing them to desert ants that live in vastly different habitats. They exploit a similar ecological niche, but they're... They're basically in kind of the salt pans of Tunisia, for example. Right, so Tunisian they, desert ants. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, they have no landmarks or no no cues whatsoever, and yet they can still navigate quite accurately as well. You're using the stars, right? Well, not using the pattern of polarized light. Okay. Uh, counting their steps to some extent. I mean, odometry. Yes. Uh, they're doing lots of different things. Path integration is their, their sure. big bread and butter. But I mean, the the idea here is that you know you got all of these different kind of navigational systems, and you can kind of compare and contrast to kind of see what ones they rely on more heavily than others, and in mm-hmm. what situations they seem to use this type of information versus uh, another type of information, and so you can get a lot of a lot of cool kind of data right looking at that how these these little insects can do such amazing feats i mean one thing that always caught my eye was reading a paper by uh rudiger vayner uh that started out that desert ants can navigate up to a million times their own body length (laughs) that's just mind-boggling yeah in a kind of a really roundabout fashion and then they kind of truck it home and they end up at this kind of one centimeter hole in the ground without any kind of air. And I did the math on this. I was like, okay, if a human can do that, yeah, yeah. what is it? I'm one foot wide, basically. So I said, okay, if that's the case, uh, that's basically me walking to Calgary through the woods and all that sort of stuff, grabbing a sandwich and then kind of <laughs> hoofing it back to the lab. <laughs> and without, and basically doing that all pretty much blind, well, not blindfolded, but you wouldn't have any of the, uh, the, the, the landmarks around, right? Or too, not too many of them. 
<clears throat> compared to what 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 uh, you know in the Australian outback, there are landmarks, but it's not like you've got uh, the Rocky Mountains sitting there, no, or, exactly. or roads. <laughs> no, exactly. And you you kind of add to that that they have kind of well compared to us a horrible visual system. I mean, they, yeah. Well, compared to you, it's probably just about the same as mine. <laughs> okay, maybe so, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's fascinating. So I really kind of got hooked on this research, yeah. this this ability to kind of look at these individual components that kind of play into navigation as a whole. Because right. I mean, a lot of people aren't aware that you know navigation involves a lot of different elements in order to allow right. you to get from one point to another. Right. And so this is kind of the big central question that I'm always interested in. So so what kind of what kind of stuff did you end up doing with the ants then? Oh, we did a lot of work where we were kind of putting. Um, their path integration system in kind of conflict with visual cues that sure. that were around their nest and also around uh, stable feeders that we we had placed outside their nest and we also did a bunch of kind of transformational work where the ants would kind of free forage into a, a an arena basically that we had mm-hmm. set up in the field with a with a feeder in the center so they'd go and they'd come into this arena through a specific entry point they'd go in they'd grab a bit of food. And then they'd want to bring this back to the nest. Right. So we would allow them to do that. They basically train themselves, which was really nice. I mean, it's yeah. 40 degrees or 50 degrees Holy geez. centigrade. You're basically staring at these ants doing this all day long. And uh, <laughs> you, so you let them train themselves. You have a coffee break or whatever. And yeah. you, next day you come out and uh, you, know, you start capturing ants as soon as they enter into the arena. Place them in kind of a, a, a separate test arena nearby. Yeah that they can't escape from, so there's no exit any longer. Usually you had some type of landmark set up within the arena, and then sure. you kind of rotate things, and you see, well, are they using the landmarks? Are they using kind of the pattern of polarized light that's coming uh, down? I mean, we didn't block that, for example, sure. and, and see what happens. So it's this kind of classic transformational approach. So one of the things that you looked at, I mean, I'm looking at this paper right now, that's uh, the Leg et al., is that, yeah, 2014, Combining sky and earth, desert ants, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, show weighted integration of celestial and terrestrial cues. So is this the kind of work you're talking about there? Yeah, this is the kind of work I'm talking about. Well, I was talking about kind of the early work. Sure. We were just having a conversation. But, yeah, we built upon that, and that was the result, this newer paper. But basically the idea there is we, we would put these different kind of navigational systems in conflict to see what – ants would do basically you know you've got landmarks pointing in one direction you've got celestial cues pointing in another direction you know what's going to happen there and essentially what seems to happen is that the ants weight each piece of information sure. according to its reliability nice uh, and they they choose an integrated vector from that essentially okay so they're they're doing something akin to kind of bayesian integration or what would be expected if these were little Bayesian ants. <laughs> right. So the, the celestial cues are probably going to be the most reliable or most stable cues anyway. Yeah. And then you would get sort of more global landmarks and then you'd get really local things, right? Yeah, absolutely. In one uh, study in that paper, we actually placed path integration in conflict with uh, visual information. And okay. so the path integration information is, you would think, somewhat more stable than perhaps the the landmark information and what you find is that the more unreliable you make the visual information Mm -hmm. so by transporting them farther away things look more and more different 
basically the the less they pay attention to those cues and the okay. more they pay attention to kind of their inward path integration system. Right. Now, is this this after much experience with, with, with you guys screwing around with them or is this at like the first time? Like as soon as you make it seem unreliable, do they stop paying attention to it? Oh, this is basically the first time. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. We take them to these. We, we want in the experiment we're talking about here, mm. we actually confine them to just traveling along one specific path okay. uh, to go to a particular feeder uh, that was 10 meters away from their nest. And we yep. basically enclosed everything there so they couldn't get outside to see anything else. Sure. So we'd let them do that for a day, just going back and forth to this feeder along this one straight path. And then we'd take them and we'd place them, you know, four meters away from that area. Yeah. So the visual cue is pretty similar. We'd take them, we'd put them 32 meters away, right. a lot different visual cues. And then okay. we'd place them 64 meters away. So it's massively different. Yes. And the more discrepant the visual information becomes, the more they pay attention to their path integration information. Yeah. Uh, but it's not an all or none thing to some extent. When you start looking at like 32 meters or four meters away from the nest, they're actually, they're actually integrating the information from their path integrator and the visual cues to kind of choose an intermediate vector and how much weight they're putting on one of these types of information versus the other is basically due to the kind of the reliability. It's interesting. I, I remember reading a paper, oh, geez, years ago, uh, or it might have just been something mentioned in, in, in Randy Gallistel's Organization of Learning book, where they took, and it might have been bees, not ants. It was something little. Uh, and moved them like 400 kilometers away. They trained them in this arena that was outside, the same sort of idea. Uh, but and then they just moved them. And of course, then, now you've got time playing a role because when it's 12 o'clock in one, well, right now, you, where you are, it's what, 1 30 in the, or one, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And it's 4 o'clock here. But if I could, you know, uh, transport you here through some sort of Star Trek like technology, <laughs> um, you know, you would still feel like it was 2 o'clock. But the sky is telling you something different and sort of putting them in conflict that way. And I, I don't know why I'm talking about this. I just remember that, that seemed like something that would involve a great deal of grant money. You know, uh, but it would be cool because in that case, you would find – I wonder if they just completely not pay attention to it at all, right? Well, yeah, exactly. That's kind of one of these ways to kind of mess with the celestial information, right, is to do these drastic transportation experiments. Yeah. Which has been done with birds for a number of years. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the ant stuff, when you were doing the ant stuff and you're sitting in the middle of the outback, did you ever just think to yourself, what's a kid from Port of Basque doing in the middle of the outback in, in Australia? Yeah. Yeah. A lot. Like, <laughs> yeah. Where's the water? <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing. Where's the water? Wow. It, it must be. So there's, there's a field station, obviously you're working at out there, right? Uh, yeah, there's a field station out there. I mean, we're basically out in the middle of nowhere right. for two months or so. I mean, Jeez. there's a town that's sort of close by which we can go into every now and again for groceries and stuff but yeah. it's kind of cool being off the grid right uh it, that was a whole new experience for me it right. was it was really neat yeah i mean uh, yeah that's amazing yeah the funny thing is i mean it's it's a neat experience i mean i told my parents i was going and they were all worried that i was going to die because there's a million things to kill you in australia oh, australia is really just designed to kill people 
yeah, I mean, yeah, and you see all this stuff, but then after a while, it's like, oh yeah, there's a snake. Oh yeah, there's there's this really dangerous spider, but you know, it's over there, so it's okay. <laughs> it's over see, there; I, it's not going to bother me. Yeah, exactly. In Port of Bass, I mean, it's a little bit different. It's like, well, <laughs> there's a seagull. That, that that's about it. It's yeah, like, or oh, oh, here comes a hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> there's always that, or the you know the, the snow's so bad that we're, nobody's going to school today. But oh. not, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's one thing from Grenfell. I mean, yeah, we got a lot of snow days there. We did. Well, of course, again, people don't really realize this, and some people may remember uh, a talk I gave in 2003 uh, at, at at CO3, and the final slide I showed uh, there was a picture of my front yard and I showed the snowbank where you could climb up under the top of the snowbank and look down into our second floor window and I think it was Tom Zental afterwards said to me so you photoshopped that I said no I live in Cornerbrook Newfoundland buddy (laughs) and actually your picture was on there because I was thanking people that were keeping the the birds running nice yeah you and Craig Keynes and probably Keo who now works out there so yeah Keo's back in Grenville now yeah it's really something eh? Yeah, um, full circle. Yeah, full circle, exactly. Now, uh, you've, one of the things you've also been interested in, it seems to me, and I didn't know about this at all. This, like, I knew about the ants. I knew about the pigeons. I didn't know that you were into this stuff about uh, where people sort of hiding things. T- talk a bit about that, because I've li- literally not heard about this work. Oh, it, this is a this is a kind of a cool idea. I mean, you know, there's a lot of research out there looking at kind of caching and cache recovery and totally. in birds, right? Yep. But then when you go and you look at humans and you look at kind of scientific studies, empirical studies looking at how humans hide things or search for things, the literature is really really sparse. And okay. This was a huge surprise. Um, so. We had an honor student in Marcia's lab that was really interested in this idea because she had a, a police background. And so Neat. she was interested in like how people hide contraband and all that kind of stuff and if we could develop kind of better ways of searching for it in a short amount of time and all that sort of stuff, hmm. which is one of these kind of gung-ho questions again. I mean, in order to do that, I think you need to kind of slow down a little bit. Right? <laughs> yes, like, I think you're right. The basic processes. Yeah, so that that's basically kind of where this research came out of, is kind of to look at how humans hide and search for things, uh, try to draw kind of comparative parallels to some of the animal research that's out there, um, and, and to look for particular biases. And so that's kind of what we've been doing within this realm. The first thing was, okay, how are we going to study this? It's not like we have houses sitting around where we could have students go in and start hiding things or searching for things. <laughs> yeah, damn yeah, you only got a little bit of lab space, so we, we, we started to create kind of a virtual protocol here so we could use kind of virtual environments to have people do this sort of thing, which sure. is great because we've established that the virtual environment is not really much different, at least in terms of how people hide and search for things, compared to um, the real world. We right. did a few kind of comparisons there. So what that allows us to do now is to kind of create virtual environments, then manipulate them so that, you know, what type of cues are present in one situation versus another, and look how that influences people's kind of hiding behavior, but also recovery behavior. Okay. So in this respect, I mean, one recent study we did, we had a couple of features that we thought were kind of no-brainers. We would definitely see kind of biases towards searching in this location or hiding in this location. And that was kind of areas of low illuminance. So we had this kind of environment where there was like a really dark, corner sure. and we had a we also had a window and the window had kind of a dude in it that was just kind of staring in from outside so, okay yeah i see where you're going sure okay 
we were trying to kind of deter people from from kind of hiding things in those locations right. and searching in other locations and those sorts of things. But the funny thing is, is I mean, what we found was there was this major disconnect between how people hide and search for objects. So mm-hmm. people don't hide in, say, the expected location. Oh, there's this really dark area. I'm not going to actually hide there. I'm going to hide kind of in the middle of the room or something yeah. like that. It's like that's just what they would expect. Exactly. But yeah, yeah. when the same people search for objects, that's the first place that they go. <laughs> so they think people, it's an interesting theory of mind kind of thing, right? It's like, I'm smarter than, ev- it's, it's, I'm more clever than everyone. I will not hide there, but everyone else is an idiot. And I'm going to go look where the idiots would hide things. That is exactly the mentality. Yeah. So it, it, it's kind of a kind of a cool question. I mean, totally. We've we've just kind of started in this work. We've only got two papers in this area, because right. uh, and it's a relatively new field. So there's a lot of things to look at here. Yes. But that that's kind of a, a major direction that I'm that I'm interested in right now. Right on. Uh, is that something you think you're going to continue on with? I, I would hope so. Okay. I, I, I think it's. You know, there's a ton of work to be done in this particular area, mm-hmm. uh, and it doesn't require too much space or resources or anything like that. It's a it's a great project to get students involved in. Yeah, and there's a lot of potential applications to go with. Oh, for it. sure. So it, it's it's win win win. Yeah, totally. You could even probably do it in like a. You said in a. Is it actually like a? Is it? It's a real room that you're doing this in, right? Well, when we did the actual experiments, we we had a real room, a mm-hmm. really large lab we got from one collaborator. Okay. Uh, we used that as kind of the real space, and then we made an analog of that using kind of a, a game engine right. and hacking it a little bit and so on and so forth so that we could do what we wanted. And we made it kind of uh, an analog of that, and what we found was there's no real differences. And we did this right. twice, two different experiments sure. around the same thing. So the idea now is that, okay, this seems pretty re- reliable. Mm-hmm. Let's just use a virtual environment. So that's yeah. kind of the next step. Kind of right. that proof of concept was important. Right. Yeah, kind of like the, some of the stuff that Brad Sturtz has done, right, in his group with, with looking at sort of uh, spatial locations in, in, in virtual environments, right? Well, absolutely, yeah. He uses the same type of game engine set that we were using. Right. No, it's uh, hoping to have Brad on. Um, yeah, it, it's one of these things that, uh, and one of the questions I've often asked people, maybe in half the episodes, do, I mean, do you think that, not just with us, but do you think, like, let's say pigeons, when they look at a slide, they look at a picture, do you think that they view it as a representation of the real world? Oh, that, that's a really tough question. <laughs> but, I mean... My inclination is to say, not exactly. Sure. I don't. I don't think it, it's it's exactly the same. Sure. Do you think it matters? It depends on the type of question that you're asking. I Fair think. Enough. Uh, sometimes no. Sometimes yes. I yeah. mean, it really depends on what type of processes you're interested in right. investigating. Yeah, because I think Marcy did some stuff where she was showing pictures of a uh, of the outside or something. And the birds were pecking on a touchscreen, and then they she let them outside, and they went to those places. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, And I, I know that Vern Honig did some stuff uh, where he showed uh, pigeons uh, slide uh, pictures, you know, slides of, of one end of a hallway in the lab or another end of the hallway, and they, one was an S plus, one was the S minus. Then he just let the birds loose in the lab and watched where <laughs> they went, and guess where they went, right? So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm. I, I don't think it matters a great deal. I mean, I don't think that they see a photograph as a, I don't think they have a, a concept of what a photograph is, but I think if it shares enough of the same uh, characteristics, 
of the real world, it, they're, they're going to respond as if it's the same. That's well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, so I, I just don't think it's that big a deal. And I think some people get really worked up about it. Um, and, uh, I think I remember having a big discussion about this with Ron Wiseman once and he was, he, he, <laughs> he did well actually almost every discussion one ever had with Ron Wiseman was involved him getting worked up somehow. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Eric, this has been a lot of fun and catching up like this. And, you know, we've known each other for like, like, like I said, a long time. Uh, hell, you, you're the first guest on the show to ever babysit my children. Um, so th- there's that. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's kind of cool. That's uh, kind of cool. Yeah, and think about it. Maddie's 23, and John will be 15 next month. So uh, oh man, makes yeah. You feel, yeah, yeah. John's 15. Uh, by the way, and he's about as big as you. <laughs> he's a big boy. Uh, he could if he if there was a, a nasty bone in his body, he could rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> like I mean, as like as a as a as a, as a you know, uh, with an iron fist, like a strong man. But he's just not that kind of person. Um, <laughs> if people want to follow you out there, like give a Twitter account, people can follow or anything like that. Yeah, I, I have. Uh, it's just my name underscore. Well, my first name underscore my last name. So Eric underscore Leg, which is L E G G E. Right at Twitter dot com. Yeah, on, on Twitter uh, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at D Broadbeck. You can find other podcasts I do at broken area.com, davebroadbeck.com, mmvh.ca, best episode ever.com, tangentialconvergence.com. Oh, go to talkingisdead.com and check out what's left, where I talk politi- uh, politics from a left wing perspective with my buddy Anthony Marco. Uh, again, thanks so much for this, Eric. This was a lot of fun. Oh, this was really cool. Thanks to you for having me on. Biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food, but you don't reinforce every time, you every, perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. the same genome and so they would try to we are a clone if you want and and we try to help our um, gametes 
to go into the next generation. In this case, it's a conflicting system. And um, for that reason, this is very interesting. This is a parasite, and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby, which doesn't look at all like the, um, like the host, and nevertheless, they manage to use precise trickery to make them do what they want.